welcome everyone to Coiscast number 10. Yes, we've reached that milestone and a uh, superb panel for you today. Um, first thing, let's say hello to Demigod. All right. Our next panelist is the ever popular Windy. Hello, everyone. And finally, the ever present AC. Hello. So we're going to do something different today, chaps. We're going to um, have an, a, an agenda for this uh, podcast that is entirely made up of questions submitted by Coisers. Um, so thank you to every Coiser who sent in and, and PM'd me questions. So let's get straight into it. And the, the first one's an interesting one in that the person has decided to batch games. So I'll run through the question and we'll see how, how you feel about each one. But what they're interested in is your win draw and lose predictions for Spurs for the remaining seven fixtures. But let's take them in the batches that they sent me. So the first group of three is a Liverpool away, Man United home, Stoke away. Um, I assume they've put those together because they consider them all to be extremely challenging for us to get points out of. Um, let's see what you think. So let's start with Demigod. Uh, I think they're grouped together because they're the next three, possibly. <laughs> I don't think so, but yeah. Um, Honestly, I really cannot call it at all. I know this is a bit of a cop-out answer. Uh, Liverpool, I feel like we were really unlucky when we played them the first time because they had the new manager bounce. And I think subsequent to that match, they've only run as far as they did against us once. So, you know, they were really up for it in that game. This game, obviously, it's Anfield. It's a little bit more difficult. But I would fancy our chances, uh, especially they seem to be having some problems up front. They haven't really got their midfield balance. And then in defence, if Martin Skirtle plays... I cannot see him containing uh, Harry Kane for 90 minutes. Manchester United, I feel like they're the team of the top six. They are the team that is probably best suited, other than maybe West Ham, to playing another member of the top six. They're very strong on the counter-attack now, and they've got real pace with uh, Martial and Rashford. So that, as bad as Manchester United are, that becomes quite a difficult match because we are going to dominate possession. We're going to give them chances. And in matches where they're the dominant team, they can be quite a, an easy team to suss out because they don't have much creativity but when the match flips on its head and they are the team counter-attacking they are much stronger Stoke I would have thought would have been a tough game but now with Butland injured um, that changes the dynamics slightly because Shea Givens in goal so that disrupts their, their back line so I am thinking that we are either going to get three wins or Seven points. Between between seven and nine points, I'm going for. Well, I'll put you down for seven, then. Seven points, and that will set us up for the title. Okay. And, Windy, what do you think? Well, I was going through all of the matches that we have remaining, and I think it's just the sense of optimism that's bubbling around at the moment has just made me lose my mind. I just can't see us losing. Um, I, and I looked through all of the teams got to play, and I looked at their, their recent records, and there's, there are reasons why we should be able to beat all of the teams. There are also reasons why, um, historically, we haven't done well at these teams. This season, I, f I just feel like we can beat anyone in the, in the league. Not just because some of those teams are playing particularly poorly, but because we're playing particularly well. And we've shown that when we play especially well, no one can handle us. We've, we've blown teams away this year. Um, we have got a poor record at Anfield historically. But Liverpool have lost three times at home this year, so they're, they are beatable uh, in the league, that is. And I do think we're going to win against Klopp's Liverpool for a lot of the reasons that Dimi said. They're, 
they're having problems up front. Obviously, they've had Sturridge coming in and out. They haven't quite got the balance right between uh, the midfield and their and their strikers. And Skirtle is very vulnerable at the back. I think we'll win that one. United aren't great away this year. They've lost four of their last eight away matches. And again, they're they're a funny team because they've got some really good players throughout. But I don't think Van Gaal knows his best eleven still. And that's we're a long way into the season to be not knowing your best eleven. Rashford's a bit of a wild card, so you don't know. I mean, he he could easily have a really good game against us and, and run as ragged. Equally, it wouldn't surprise me at all if if Alderweireld and Vimmer had Rashford in their back pocket for the game. So I feel confident about that one as well, and I'll I'll go with the win there. Um, Stoke actually scare me more than Liverpool and Man U, which is a bit odd. And their home record isn't particularly good this year, um, or certainly recently. They've lost two of their last four at home against Everton and Southampton, who are good to middling teams. They did beat Chelsea and Man City at home and drew with Arsenal and Leicester. So they've got some pedigree against the better sides. But as Jimmy says, Butland's potentially going to be missing. And I think that that'll help us. I can see that one being um, a nil-nil or a one-all. So I'll go with a draw on that one. Okay, And that's also seven points, I think, you were predicting from those three games. Yes. Um, And AC, how many points do you think we'll get from them? Uh, I've written down draw, win, win, with the draw being against Liverpool. I think that not because I think that they're a particularly good team. It's because I think that Klopp will just get them working really hard and just sit up really defensively against us. Um, I think he realises that we're going to go there and probably dominate, so... I think he'll just try and frustrate us. So I guess I'll have to, I'll channel my inner, um, his name is Luca or Matt Kay or The Hood, um, and a little bit more pessimistic, probably because I've been a Spurs fan a while, but I see five points out of those games. I don't see us losing any, but um, I I agree with what Wendy said about Stoke. For some reason, I worry about that game as much as, if not more than the others. But, um, is that because they tend to set up to contain more than the other two sides, perhaps? Yes, exactly. I think it's this season their 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 forward players don't exactly play very defensively. Yeah, they have been much more open, and actually they've been playing Affleck in midfield, which I think most people wouldn't necessarily see as someone that could sit deep as a one of the two in a two four two three one. So they are quite open. They're much less uh, of a Tony Pulis side than uh, they once were. They're I think they're there to be got at, to be honest. Okay. Um, so, Wendy, we'll go to you for the next group of three, the West Brom home, uh, Chelsea away, Southampton home game. How many points do you think from those? Uh, again, I've gone um, seven points. But I've gone win, draw, win here. So, West Brom, I think, will we'll beat. I mean, they're safe, they're mid-table, and they're a very beatable side. I've seen seen them a few times this year and they're nothing special at all. I, I actually don't know how they've managed to get to mid-table at this point. They're not a particularly good team. It's just Poulos grinding out um, results, really. Chelsea, we're playing at a bad time and, and potentially playing at a worse time because they've got four or five winnable games leading up to our match. And so if they do win all of those, then they could be pushing for top six, which obviously Abramovich will want to finish as high as he can. So there'll be even more motivation for them. So I, I can see us drawing that one. Um, in previous years, I might have said a loss, but I just can't see us losing at the moment. Um, and then Southampton, I think, will beat. I, I, I think we're a better side, man for man, and as a team than Southampton. Although I do like Southampton, I like Koeman, um, and I like kind of the signings he's made. I think they're still 
some of their signings are still settling in. I think Classy's a really good player, but he hasn't quite found his form yet. Um, I think he'll be good next year, but I see us beating Southampton at home. Okay, seven from you. And from AC? Uh, I've gone for six. I think we'll beat West Brom. I think we'll lose against Chelsea because I think it just being a derby and Chelsea being Chelsea, they will do everything they can to screw us over. Um, and then I always feel very confident whenever we play against Southampton because I think we're the way we play is quite anti-Southampton. Okay. And Dimmy? Uh, I think I'll go with six points as well. I think there's a loss in that batch of fixtures, potentially. Um, there's something about the West Brom game that fills me with dread. I think it's got Saido Berahino, 90th minute winner <laughs> all over it. Uh, I'm not... Chelsea, I just feel if the atmosphere, if the, the feeling that the fans have that this is a cup final, this is their big chance to get one over on Spurs and to... Uh, stop us from winning the title. I think if that feeling and that sense of pride can translate into the team, I think that could be a really difficult match. Um, I'm not convinced that, that that is a team that particularly feels that way. They seem like a bunch of mercenaries at the moment. Um, and then Southampton, I expect us to beat. So, gentlemen, be- between you, you've really either gone for a total of 13 or 14 points from those games. So the final question is, is that enough? Will that be enough for us to have a chance at the championship, a chance to win the title on the last day of the season? And if it does, do you believe we can go to Newcastle and win that game? We'll start with Wimby. Newcastle terrifies me. It really does. I mean, that, that fixture, there's something about it that I find utterly terrifying. I think by then, Benitez might have got them more organised. I think Benitez is a really decent manager when it comes to organising a defence and he, he tends to get to work quickly and I can see them being a different um, proposition to what they would have been had we played them a bit sooner. I think if we played them next week, we, we would probably steamroll them, but playing them last game of the season, I'm nervous about that one and I could see us losing on the last day of the season. If they, and I, I, just, I don't want to even contemplate it, but imagine if we were to win that and win the league and then losing at Newcastle it would just be the most Spurs thing to have ever happened in the history of Spurs Okay, and Dimmy? Um, it, it depends what Newcastle have to play for if anything at all I think Norwich play Sunderland and Newcastle over the next couple of games so there's a couple of six pointers in there which could determine quite early on whether Newcastle have any chance to stay up or not uh, historically I guess it would be uh, a match that would uh, give me the willies but in this instance I feel pretty confident they're playing incredibly badly they were so lucky to beat us that we had this you know just the one most horrific half that we've played all season uh, I mean it, it all depends on what's to play for I mean it could be that there's a, it's an absolute dead robber uh, in which case I, I suspect maybe Newcastle would do us I see I think if it's a game where we can potentially win the title by winning it I think we'll win it I've got a feeling about this team. Um, and I think Leicester will be in a position where we'll, they'll be catchable. I think I think it could come down to the final game of the season, but I thought that Leicester would drop more points than they currently have in the past last in the last three games. So who knows? For me, I I, uh, I realised that many Spurs fans would 
accuse me of lacking in ambition. But if we finish second or third, um, I will still consider it an excellent season. Um, and I won't be too disheartened. I'll be disappointed short term, but not disheartened. Because I think for us this year, particularly given the age of the team, uh, given the tenure of the manager, given the direction we're heading, and given, honestly, the new stadium on the horizon, for us, qualifying for the Champions League is all important. And if we do that, and particularly if we finish in the top three, um, I will consider it a very successful season. Yeah, I totally agree. I don't think this season can be seen as anything other than a huge success. Regard, well, assuming now we finish in the top three, I think if someone had said before the season uh, that the options were we would finish second and automatically qualify for the Champions League and Arsenal would not win the title, I think every single person would have taken that. And that is probably what it looks like. I think at the moment, Arsenal's chances of winning the title are slim to none. That it's either Leicester win it or we do. We pip them to the post. I can't see Leicester dropping enough points for Arsenal to get it. So it's quite a nice position to be in. Um, and I really think that the, the foundations have been put in place because this is such a young team. It's the youngest team in the Premier League that, you know, the, most of these players aren't going to be hitting their peaks for three or four years. You look at someone like Christian Eriksen, he's four years younger than Mesut Ozil, and only now Mesut Ozil is reaching his peak as a playmaker. Harry Kane's still only 22, Deli Alli is 19. So, yeah, it's wonderful for the future, a wonderful foundation season, and something that can really give them belief that they can beat the bigger teams and compete for a title. Agreed. Um, we have a question for you, Wendy, from the great Blighty. And he asks, who is responsible for finding the players which are making our academy one of the best in the PL. We appear to have an abundance of promising young players in every age group, which must predate Mitchell's arrival. So who is or was responsible? I feel like I kind of want to slightly back away from this question because I don't don't fully know um, the answer. Um, I presume that it's, it's... the usual situation that academy clubs um, have where scouts go out to regional county matches and have contacts at schools who recommend their talents. Um, but honestly, I, d- I don't know how the, the, the scouting structure works at academy level and how sort of kids as young as seven or eight are recruited in. I know that you know when, when you're a team like Tottenham, you're going to get inundated with calls from from parents and from teachers saying you know we've got this real talent who who wants to come for a trial etc etc and they do run these trial days and i'm sure kids get taken in from from those kind of trials but ultimately i don't quite know how the scouting works i know that we have recruited players from opposition teams we play them at friendlies so for example at the moment we're playing an under 19 tournament in dusseldorf germany um we played against Milos Velkovic when he was 15 and basically signed him after that um, tournament. The same could happen again where, you know, we spot someone in an opposition team and sign them. Um, but in terms of players and, and how we spread the net in this country, I, I honestly don't know how exactly how it works. I wouldn't like to, to speculate, really. Uh, you're certainly right on the the idea of players being recommended by teachers. Back in the early 90s i was living in um a village called sunning hill um in berkshire uh, on the berkshire surrey border um and the local team in the village team had a player who was uh, head and shoulders above everybody else and the the school teacher the the sports teacher uh, recommended him to spurs for a trial was he taken up he got a trial but was not taken up 
I thought you were about to go, and that player was Ledley King. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, that case, we'll re-record and I'll make up a name. <clears throat> um, next question. Oof, this is going to be interesting. So the Quasar asks for, for each of us, for our player of the year so far, the most improved player, and the player who's been better than we thought they would be. So I think we will start with Demigod. Oh, oh, <laughs> right. So I'm going to go player of the year, Harry Kane. And the reason for that is because he has grown into the most complete and dominant forward in the league, I think, at the moment. Um, there are a lot of instances where I don't think we necessarily click as a team. And Harry Kane is the one that sort of brings us out of that stupor and drives us on. And there are a lot of comparisons people will make between Kane and Aguero as to who's better. And Aguero probably, um, as, as, as an aesthetic player, is the more appealing. He's certainly got the lower uh, centre of gravity. He's um, much, much quicker. He's so clinical. But when the Man City structure breaks down, Aguero isn't always as effective. Whereas I think Kane can play regardless of what's behind him. And... You know, that was especially evident last season when I don't think we necessarily clicked as a unit. But this season, with everything clicking, he's been absolutely brilliant. And, you know, you discount the first 10 games where I thought he was contributing, but not quite scoring. And now sort of the last 20 games that he's played, certainly in 2016, he's been unbelievably good. And I think there's, there's so much precision about the way he plays as well. I think there was, um, Rene Mullenstein was talking about how he coached uh, Cristiano Ronaldo and they would colour code the goal after training and Ronaldo would work on you know, a position that he would appear in the box if he was like at the left corner of the box that he would aim for red, which red would be the bottom far corner. And they colour coded all the all the corners of the goal so that he knew exactly where he had to put the ball in every single position on the pitch. And Kane feels to me that he's almost got that level of efficiency now. And I wonder if maybe they have been using the same techniques to to coach him to get to improve his finishing because he is so clinical and. Every single shot seems to be going into the, the side net and against Germany uh, last night. You saw it again. It's just the, the pure precision of it. But then as well as being this strong, bulking physical presence, this you know real spearhead for our attack, he's also got this craft and control and creativity. And you saw it with the, the Cruyff turn last night. He's a wonderfully rounded player. And I think that we would we are better the more dependent we are on Kane. And uh, so I'm I'm delighted to see that he's scoring so freely at the moment. And I think if we win the title, it will be decided in these seven games and by the goals Kane scores. And your most improved player? Most improved? I mean, this is a tough one because so many players have really come on leaps and bounds since Pochettino took over. Uh, I'm going to go for... Kyle Walker. Because I think Carl Walker got a really undue amount of stick. I mean, he was a. Uh, sometimes he, he switched off um, and was bailed out by his pace and was probably a little bit too reliant on his pace. But I think a full pre season of working with Pochettino, because he was injured the summer before he came, as uh, Rose got the first time around. And then, like with Rose, having the pressure applied of Trippier, who was a player who sort of had a lot of the, um, the skill set that Walker lacked in terms of. Uh, crossing and delivery and composure maybe in the final third which Walker lacked I think bringing someone in like Trippier has really shown to Walker exactly what his weaknesses are and he's improved and he's got much better because of Trippier 
but he's also become incredibly solid defensively. I think you know the the brain farts have gone from his game, and he's also one of the mo- most senior players in the, the team as well now. And I think you can see there's a real reliance on him as an older head to uh, lead the players, and I think he's done that admirably. And I, for my money, he's he's the best right back in the uh, the Premier League at the moment. So yeah, I think he's been absolutely fantastic. I wouldn't let JKS hear you say that. Well, Jake is welcome to his opinions, but on this instance, he is wrong. <laughs> Only in this instance? Um, so, so you're uh, the player that's been better than you thought they would be. Okay, so this one is going to be Eric Dyer. I mean, there are again, there are a lot of a lot of people you could choose for this one, but I think there was such a sense of dread going into this season that we didn't have a central midfielder, and you know the idea that Eric Dyer would transform from what was I guess third choice centre back maybe uh, to first choice midfielder and potentially the best holding midfielder in the Premier League is uh, absolutely unreal he has improved almost every facet of his game I think you know what we saw last season was a very calm and mature player who was um, you know he, he clearly had a very good cross on him he was very very calm and serene on the ball but the idea of him as much as he may have played there for sporting previously, the idea of him going up into the midfield role was not something that people would have expected him to excel at. And what he's come in, he's been incredibly mobile. He's helped with the press. Uh, he's so strong and robust in the tackle. He absolutely dominates the midfield. But then he also, on the ball, he's really cultured and calm. And I think, he, you know, just as a point of reference, because he was playing last night, but... Uh, Dyer was playing against Tony Cruz and Sammy Kadira, who are World Cup winning midfielders. And, you know, best at at their trade, playing for Juventus and Real Madrid, and he didn't look overawed by the occasion at all, he kept Mesut Ozil in his pocket, he was he's developed into such an incredibly no-nonsense, controlling midfielder, and I think it's absolutely wonderful to see, and he's, you know, contributes to our strong spot, and he's been fantastic Um, I'm trying to think who should go next, how about Ace, no, Windy, let's hear yours I kind of want to change your mind now after such a cohesive and convincing argument from from Dimmy there I mean this the thing is there's so many potential you, you could pick so many different players in these categories such has been the improvement in individuals I mean for I'm going to go player of the year so far Toby Alderweireld um, I think he has been absolutely magnificent and consistently magnificent um, and I expected him to be pretty good I don't think I quite knew how good he was I, I, I'd seen him a few times at Southampton I'd seen him play at centre-back and in defensive midfield and I thought he was a very competent player and I expected him to come in and improve things not least because we had a really happy centre-back pairing for most of last year we had Fazio playing an awful lot we had Kirik as, as a backup, and and Dyer was good when called upon but also he he did look um raw at center back he looked uh, quite naive at times Alderweireld just oozes uh calmness and he gives the players around him a sense of calm as well and he's improved everyone that he's played with we've gone from conceding what 53 goals last year to I think 24 this year and that a large chunk of that must go be because that Alderweireld has been so commanding. Um, Vertonghen looks a much better player having Alderweireld alongside him. They've got a good understanding when one pushes forward to try and win the ball, the other will drop in. Normally Vertonghen's the one that gets licensed to, to move forward, but Alderweireld's equally capable of going forward, and we've seen that with his two assists for for Deli Ali scoring goals in very similar fashion way. He just played an um, unbelievable um, weighted pass over the top of the defence for Deli Ali to take in his stride. 
Um, he's just a real talent and we're lucky to have him, really. And your um, most improved player? My most improved player, and I never thought I would say this, is Moussa Dembele. Um, I, I, when he was being linked with Sunderland in, in the summer, I was very happy for him to join Sunderland. And I thought that he would just spend the rest of his career making sideways passes and, and doing uh, 360 turns for Sunderland in their midfield. He has been a revelation this year. Um, he's, you know, he's undoubtedly had an exceptional amount of ability since he's joined Spurs. But for me, they were always very niche qualities. They're always very specific skill sets. He was fantastic at um, controlling the ball, dribbling with the ball. I'd say an almost unparalleled dribbler in Premier League. I don't, I can't think of anyone that shifts their body weight as neatly as Moussa Dembele. Um, and he's great at protecting the ball when, when you need to hold off two or three players. But, but he kind of lacked any sort of cutting edge, be that a through ball or a shot or a tackle or the ability to press consistently. And I don't think I've ever known a player for Spurs be hauled off at half-time as many times as Dembele. I mean, sometimes you could just tell when Dembele was having a, one of those games within about five minutes of a match, and he'd get taken off at half-time, and you think, you know, what, what was going on with Dembele today? But perhaps it was due to this persistent hip injury, and perhaps it was due to kind of con- him not having the confidence in his body. Um, this season just been a completely different Dembele. He's... he's it's like he's kind of got been given the direction that he's always needed. Um, and Pochettino has truly coached the best out of him. He's now probably one of our most important players. When we don't have him, we look unable to control midfield. When we do have him, he's sort of leading the charge in midfield. His pressing is so... It's just... It's unlike anything I expected him to be able to show. He's He looks fit. He looks slimmer. Uh, he's counter-pressing, so when we lose the ball, he's the first to kind of try and win it back. Um, so impressed by him this year, and he's even got a couple of goals as well. So it's been a remarkable turnaround for him. And the player that's been better than you thought there would be? I will go for Deli Alley. Um, I, I must admit, I hadn't seen an awful lot of Deli Alley. I'd seen highlights packages, I'd seen YouTube clips, I'd seen the occasional goal on the Football League show, and I'd read numerous reports saying how everyone who's seen him at that level thought he would be the new Steven Gerrard. But you didn't really expect that to happen. You don't expect a player stepping up two divisions who's still 19 to be as good as Ali's been. And he sort of came into the team at the start of the season, mainly because of injury. He sort of got thrust into there. And if you remember, he started in the double pivot. He was playing alongside uh, Dyer in the opening games, if I recall. Or maybe had been to there, actually, in the first game. Um, and since he's pushed forward, he's been nothing short of remarkable. It's the way he's taken to the Premier League is staggering. He, he plays with the confidence of a much older player. And I think that's because he has so many games to his name at such a young age. Um, his touch is inconsistent still. He has a bit of a hot-headed streak. But he has that quality that can light up a game. And I think we all saw it with the, the goal against Crystal Palace. But there have been numerous other moments as well. And watching him play so well for England last night, probably the best player on the pitch, um, nailing his place in the, in the Euro squad. I mean... I felt a real surge of pride watching him play last night, and I think he's going to be a fantastic player. I think he's got another level to go to, and I'm really excited to see him um, get to that level at Spurs. 
Fantastic. Well, given the um, the depth of analysis and the cogent assessments that the two of you <clears throat> have made, um, I, I would probably have gone for three players who appeared on your lists, um, particularly Toby for Player of the Year. But in the interest of diversity, I'll throw some mm, other names into the hat for various uh, awards. So for me, I'll say my Player of the Year so far, I'll choose Dyer, Eric Dyer. And I would say if you have to ask why, then you haven't been paying attention. But I truly believe what he's done um, has been remarkable, not just very good. Not only in the way he plays, and I don't know if any of you have had the chance to read um, Hartyard's recent uh, thread um, on on 13 steps and, and um, Pochettino's style of play and how the team have evolved to match his preferred style. <clears throat> but it really shows you what a key component Dyer is. I also believe it's no coincidence that the centre-backs, the full-backs, Dembele, the players around him have all improved as a result of, of him locking down that position. So I'll go for Eric Dyer as my player of the year. Most improved player, um, I'm sort of like Windy. It's a player that I would have, wouldn't have been unhappy if we'd have lost um, or sold earlier, well, probably in the off-season, um, which is Danny Rose. But to be fair, not only has he improved from last year, but he's continued to improve through the year and got better and better. I'm, I'm a fan of, of Davis for certain games, and I really thought there was a time where, where Ben Davis was going to replace him. Um, but fair play to Rose. He's really kicked on. Um, he's improved to the point where he's clearly first choice. And for me, the play has been better than I thought. And to be honest, it's entirely due to the fact that I had no thoughts about him because I had no expectations because I didn't know much about him, um, is Kevin Wimmer. Uh, to come in to replace a player that not only do I rate in general, in Jan Vertonghen, but one who I thought was playing um, his best football for us alongside Toby, to come in and replace him so seamlessly is incredibly impressive. Um, so they are my, my three awards. How about yeah, for you? Kevin, Kevin Vim is a great shout. Just quickly say, I'd completely yep. forgotten about him actually, but that, yeah, that's a superb shout. Um, I think he was part of the, the second best defense in Germany last season with Cologne and, uh, the left back for Cologne was playing for Germany last night. But yeah, he's, he's slotted in absolutely seamlessly. I think he's, yeah, he's a great pick actually, that one. And AC Testament to, um, Mitchell scouting there with Vimmer as well. Real, real bargain buy. I'm going to, I can't really add to anything that, that people have already said. Um, cause I think you've covered pretty much everyone really. So I'm going to do something slightly different. Uh, my player of the year, I can't really change what I've been saying all season. So I'm just going to have to stick with it and say Toby Alderweireld. Um, Windy's review of him was pretty sensational, but there was one thing he did mention, which was how superb his hair is. I don't like his haircut. I'm not a fan of his haircut. Well, there's something wrong with you. You're clearly dead inside. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's never got a hair out of place. It's brilliant. Um, most improved. Um, I really like what Eric Dyer's done with his hair this season. I think that's been really good. And the player I thought was better than I thought they would be, I have to go Kevin Vimmer because... Is he brings a certain, you know, balance to the hairstyles in our centre backs. So I think he's been really good. 
I think it goes to show as well uh, just quite how good every player has been that uh, Hugo Lloris, who is, you know, before the season started, people would have said probably one of only two world-class players, and certainly him and Kane were the only two players that were really turning it on last season, that he hasn't been mentioned at all. Eric Lamella's been absolutely uh, brilliant in the counter-pressing this season, and then Christian Eriksen is kind of like an unsung hero as well. So, you know, across the board, I think there's, you know, it's not just a starting eleven that's been playing well. There's 13, 14, 15 players that have done really, really well this season. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, so now we come to the uh, quite a popular segment where the mystery quizess, I suppose it is, um, has sent in some trivia questions for you, for the panel. So I guess this is for any of you who wants to take it on. First question. Which player has won more club player of the year than any other? Out of the current squad? No, at all, ever. In in world football? No, no, Spurs. Player. Oh. <laughs> Spurs. <laughs> guess though but no I'll give you a clue they, they won it three times nobody else has won it more than twice well Gin- Ginola must have won it twice what about Robbie Keane yep yes no Windy takes the lead that's about you okay question two she, she asks how many non-European players have won player of the year for Spurs in, its, in their history this is going to be a shot in the dark um, ten. You were so. You're only one digit out. Nine. No, Eleven. that's one number out. I said one oh, digit out. One. So close. None. Yes. Ah. Wow. Yeah. None. None. Racist. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Question three. How many? How did you never won it? <laughs> <laughs> How many non-European managers have Spurs had? Oh, I want to say two. And you want to be right? Ardiles and Pochettino, yes. I was literally just looking at this the other day because it's weird. There's not many South Americans. Well, um, I think Pellegrini was only the third South American to manage in the Premier League. Yeah, it, it, and it's yeah, it's just interesting. And of course, both from the same country. Um, and then next one, how many non-European players are there in the THFC Hall of Fame? Two. two. Yep, which two? Uh, Mikey and Ozzy Ardiles. Yeah, have you noticed the theme amongst... So really, when we say non-European, there may be 180 countries or 170 countries. Of <laughs> it's just but they all... <laughs> and finally, her last question is... I have no idea how you're going to answer this one, but the most common surname amongst players in the THFC Hall of Fame. Smith. Smith. You would think, no, only one Smith. Bobby Smith. Bobby. I'll give you a clue. One of them scored a large number of goals in one season for us. Alan. Yep. Uh, How many? Two. Three. Les, Clive and Paul. All related, I think. Yes. Paul Allen, wow. Surprised Paul Allen's in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, me too. That was the one that surprised me. Interesting uh, Hall of Fame choices, seeing as... Is Greavesy in it now? Have they done that? Uh, I think he's going to be put in sometime this before the end of the season. 
Didn't he have to ask to be put in? I think he, I think he had to ask the club to be put into the Hall of Fame. I think there was a huge... Uh, I mean, I've tried working out the the, uh, the root cause of it, but I think there was some massive falling out between the club mm. and Jimmy Greaves, which wasn't properly resolved. I thought he was in the Hall of Fame, honestly, because the last ones I remember were... were um, last year was uh, Paul Miller and... Um, Paul Miller and... Graham Roberts were, were inducted. So I think he was in before that. I could be wrong. Okay. I'm sure the, the mystery uh, trivia setter will she'll, she'll PM me and tell me. <laughs> Question. I've just, I just Googled it very quickly. Oh, what's the answer? Um, he will be inducted into the Hall of Fame along with Steve Perryman on Wednesday, April 20th, 2016. See, now, how are they being inducted this year? And we've got all three Allens in it. Well, well, Les Allen predated him, I think. I went to uh, an event where Steve Perryman was speaking, which actually sustained Spur from the forum organised, and he seemed very um, cynical about his relationship with the club after he left, and it seemed like he kind of blamed Levy and the, the people in charge with Levy for the relationship souring, so I don't know if it's something to do with that. Mm. Mm. So this question comes from the uh, Demigod fan club, um, of which there are many members, um, and the question for you, sir, is what do you think of the proposed changes to the structure of the CL? Um, to be honest, I think it's a bit of a nonsense. Um, just to spell it out if anyone doesn't know, uh, the proposed structure change is a, a first round of 32, uh, which then reduces it to 16 teams, and then you have two mini-leagues of eight teams playing 14 matches each, and then whoever wins each mini-league then plays each other off in the final. So it's kind of got an NFL vibe with the, um, the you know, two team two leagues then coming down to two teams, but without the playoffs. And, you know, we've just one knockout round, basically, before you get to the final. Um, I think it is quite a cynical attempt for the rich to get richer. I think it is about uh, the biggest clubs maintaining a certain degree of control over uh, the Champions League earnings. I think uh, there's been a big problem recently with the Champions League losing audiences and losing uh, revenue, largely because there are matches where you've got a big team like Real Madrid playing against Bate Borisov and no one wants to watch it. So they obviously want to remove that situation where you can get a team like Real Madrid playing against a team like Bate Borisov. Um, the problem with that is that I think they've gone for an approach that almost feels like a kind of cleansing of any team that isn't like a, a big Western powerhouse European team. Um, I, it's also counterintuitive to what you know the common thinking is across Europe because uh, certainly in the Premier League you had... Uh, this spread of wealth uh, with all the teams getting the right amount of getting a, an even share of the money, which, um, you know, has cre- created a, a foundation whereby you can have a team like Leicester emerge and be challenging for the title or even a team like Spurs challenging for the title because it simply wouldn't exist if we were playing in Spain. And obviously there was the uh, the Spanish league have now changed to that system whereby instead of Real Madrid and Barcelona brokering their own deals for TV revenue, it's now shared equally. So it seems like, you know, across Europe, there's much more of a push towards the Premier League model just at the point at which the Premier League big boys and the Champions League big boys have decided that actually, no, they, they want to go the other direction. Um, it seems to me to be, you know, this is just a really unfair and unjust way to try and set up a tournament. I think uh, not only in terms of trying to get rid of uh, the small teams, but also in terms of the fan experience. I think there is not a lot of potential to enjoy a 14-match uh, league season between the big clubs, especially when the potential is that, you know, 
maybe three games into the league season, you've lost all three games and some other teams are one or three, you're already out of the running to finish top. So then you've got four, five, six, seven, eight dead rubbers, most of which are going to be away. Who's going to go to those games? What's the atmosphere going to be? I think it's going to alienate core support. Um, I think, I think problematically, I, I don't actually believe that the bigger teams care at all because you've got someone like Charlie Stilitano who has organized the international champions cup, um, which has seen about 30 major European teams playing across China, uh, Australia. There's some games in Europe. There's a lot in North America. And you know, he's got this idea that teams like Leicester maybe don't deserve to be in the Champions League. Teams like uh, Ghent don't deserve to be in the Champions League. But teams like Manchester United have almost like a birthright to be in the Champions League. And I think that that's really problematic. I think that the structure changes that they want. Obviously, the, the, you know, it would be good... If there was a means to create a tournament that was slightly uh, more relevant to the season in question, because I always feel that the Champions League is almost like an echo of last season. So you get a team like Champ- uh, Chelsea in there who are not as good this season. I think everyone would prefer to see Leicester this season play against Barcelona and see where they're at. But unfortunately, we'll get the Leicester of next season who will probably not have Mares or Kante and you get a completely different team. And it, it, it doesn't quite work, the system, as is. Uh, they've put forward a plan that I think will make it a lot worse and I think that's a real a real big shame for European football I, I agree with much of what you said and, and particularly when you um, reference the NFL because it, it does almost head towards I mean the NFL is a closed shop there is no relegation from it so you know clubs feel very certain that they are going to get their share of TV revenues etc and, and merchandise and marketing um, and you have to believe that's what the big European clubs want. They don't want to take the risk of ending up like potentially a Chelsea could this year or a Manchester United and not have Champions League football. Um, I also wonder, when I look at those two leagues and they're playing 14 games, you're home and away, really, isn't that just half a European league? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And actually, I think it's, it's up to fans to kind of say no to this because the big teams won't. And I think a lot of fans have seen the uh, International Champions Cup friendly fixture list over the summer and they see Barcelona against Chelsea and Real Madrid against Liverpool and they see all these amazing matchups and they think it's better than the Champions League. But you lose so much from the competition if it was to go into a league system. Um, you know, maybe there are things to be done. Maybe teams could be drawn in such a way that you wouldn't get a trip like Spurs playing against a team from Kazakhstan or something. Um, maybe you could be more regional or something like that. But I think on the whole, it's, it just it feels like um, there's a real greed to it. It's not about it's about the big clubs taking you know the best of football and keeping it for themselves rather than spreading the wealth across the rest of Europe. Do you think the impetus for this is coming from? the large Premier League clubs or from the large European clubs where there are only one or two, maybe three big boys in a league full of minnows? I I think actually it probably doesn't suit the the bigger European clubs at all to have a league system uh, just simply because they can rest their players quite comfortably for a knockout match. They can have a game one, you know, they you look at Bayern Munich this season, okay, there's, I think there's five points to Dortmund, but last season, at this stage of the season, they were about 12, 16 points clear. Paris Saint-Germain have the title already wrapped up. So I think for them, it, it suits to have a knockout competition because they can have all their players rested now rather than, you know, maybe if they were going into to league matches, they'd be playing bigger teams. It 
more consistently and it'd be a bit more difficult to manage both competitions. I think for the, the Premier League teams, they have a real concern that West Ham's, Stoke City's, Leicester City's are going to be taking them out of the Champions League places. I would suggest that maybe the best alternative would be just to accept that there is a higher standard of teams in the English Premier League and that if you are going to allow the third best team in Belarus to enter into the first knockout stages of the Champions League, perhaps you should allow the seventh best team in England to enter the Champions League at that early knockout stage. Windy, some questions for you, uh, player-specific questions for you. Uh, most, if not all, have come from um, the aforementioned Jake S. So thanks to Jake for sending them in. So take them one at a time. The first question is about Marcus Edwards and what's the situation with his contract? Okay, so I, I don't really know the ins and outs um, as, as I don't know. I, I'm basing it on old information, essentially. But as far as I'm aware, there's no contract been signed yet. Um, but I don't think we need to panic about it. I don't think that we need to assume that he won't sign a contract. I've been told that it's just a case of his camp, i.e. his probably his family and his agent, trying to hold out for more money. Basically, in Edwards, we've got probably the best 17-year-old in the country, or certainly one of the best 17-year-olds in the country. And Spurs offer a flat rate for all their pro contracts to offer to 17-year-olds. Edwards understandably thinks he's worth more than the, the basic flat rate 17 year old pro contract being such a good talent. Um, Spurs wouldn't want to set a precedent by going over and above their usual offering. And I can see it from both sides. I think ultimately they'll find a compromise and Edwards will sign a contract. Uh, and perhaps there'll be an agreement that he'll, he'll get a second contract quite quickly or perhaps there'll be a one off payment to, go alongside that. I don't know what they'll do, but I, I, I would imagine he'll sign on. He's a real talent, and to let him go would be upsetting, to say the least. Second question, Shiloh Tracy. How's his progress been? He looks okay. He's. I saw him play against Arsenal for the under-18s. He played at right-back, and he was billed as being a winger or forward um, so I was kind of surprised to see him playing at right back, but he did a really good job in a 4-0 win. Um, very, very physical, tall, tall lad for a 17-year-old, quick, strong, decent touch, but not outrageously good. Likes to go on the outside, get a cross in. Um, and he, he, he worked really hard as part of a back four in that game. He's since played on the right quite a bit. He apparently had a really good game against Wolves where he was involved in three of our first four match, four goals rather. Um, I've been watching some of these under 19 champions trophy games and he's been playing at right wing again. I wouldn't say he stood out. No, neither has he been especially uh, poor, but he just hasn't really stood out as an outstanding talent. Um, and that's with a lot of our better players away playing international football during the break. So he's kind of playing in amongst younger players or players who probably aren't at the, the top end of the ability scale. Um, so if he was going to stand out, this might have been the time. But, you know, he's he's very young. He's been brought in uh, to a new team, still acclimatising. So I think we'll probably see the best of him in the coming seasons. And, of course, he could have just been bought to fill a gap because sometimes at youth level they do that. If they feel like they've got a spot coming up in the team that needs filling, some teams will literally sign a player just to fill, fill a gap so that someone else doesn't have to play out of position. What position is he playing mostly? Well, he's mostly played right wing. Um, 
but I gather that he can play up front as well. I've not seen him play as a striker yet. I think he, he, he feels most comfortable at right wing. And the last question was, well, I'll put it in the, the way that it was written. Musa Yahya, Yahya, does he exist? Does he exist? He does exist. And he's just signed a five-year contract for a Portuguese second division club, Porto Minense. So all of the kind of mystery surrounding his proposed move to Spurs or trial at Spurs or whatever happened is finally over. And we can, we can stop asking questions about him and, and, and thinking that the club are keeping something from us. I gather that he did have a lengthy trial at Spurs, that there were problems in securing a work permit. And he wasn't ultimately that great, so the club didn't think it was worth pursuing. So he's got a he's got a deal at a Portuguese second division club, and good luck to him. I hope he does well there. Okay, thanks. Um, and the last question is: choose one technology change that you believe could improve football, and we'll go to AC first. Um, I think it's a very difficult one to pick one technology, but. I would quite like to have a a sort of single review system where the manager can make a choice to review a single decision. Um, it's been introduced in lots of other sports, and I don't know. I just think it would make it a bit more interesting. I don't really think it would actually add too much time to the games or anything. Um, there's already loads of time taken up by loads of other stuff. So... I think it would be fun. Okay. I don't know if he'd better. I, I saw somewhere, and I can't remember where, so apologies to the quizzer who, who sent it to me, um, of the idea of, of almost borrowing from the NFL, of saying you have a single review, but to make sure there aren't frivolous reviews, that if your review is uh, not successful, you, you lose one of the substitutes. So you, but you can only make two substitutions or one or wherever it is that you are in the game. Um, yeah, I quite like that. Which which would certainly um, that would certainly make managers think, and that it means really they're only um, opting for the review when they feel really confident they've been hard done by. Dimmy, what change would you make that could improve football? Uh, my one's really boring. I don't necessarily know if it would improve football, but it might just improve my general sense of. Uh, annoyance when it comes to the end of matches but I would introduce a live clock from around about the 70th minute, maybe like bang on 70 minutes, it switches to a live clock and that would eliminate time wasting, I don't think you could do it for the whole match because I think the ball stays in play for around about 62 minutes I think uh, so you, you, know, you probably have to add another hour onto the the match time if you're doing a live clock throughout, but I think it's something the Amer the Americans have put forward to a committee that would then go through potential rule changes. They want a live clock. Um, I think it would add a sense of drama uh, if, for example, you could you know beat the buzzer and you know score shoot right at the death. I think it would eliminate certain problems you get um, when time has elapsed and it's that weird sort of grey area between where they say at least five minutes and then it's the five minutes and forty five seconds of stoppage time. And you're not quite sure why it's still playing on. Um, I think it takes it out of the referee's hands. I think sometimes referees can get a little bit carried away and lost in the moment when uh, you know a ball's getting played into the box and they just go, okay, we'll let this one more thing go in. I think it'd be better if it just ended bang on when it's supposed to end, and then it would eradicate you know Stoke ball boys with towels and well, absolute nonsense like that. I was going to that was exactly going to be my, my answer to this: is the game having a game clock. But I would actually have it for the whole game. I see no reason for it to be covert. 
found to pay no money and they deserve to know whether they're getting their, their money's worth in terms of at least the time, if not the entertainment. And I believe the clock ranges from, oh sorry, the, the amount of time the ball is live in a football game ranges from World Cups where it's the least amount, which is I think 57 minutes, to the Western European leagues where it's in that 62, as you said, to 66 minute range. Um, and I think it'd be really easy to set it instead of, you know, having to do it in the last, say, 20 minutes. Why not set it to, for example, 70 minutes to start with, or actually 35 per half, and then you get two 35-minute halves. You know you're getting at least, if not more, um, live football time than you would have done under the current system. There's no negative impact on the flow of the game. It's very easy to implement. It's easy to manage. As you said, it allows referees or gives them one less thing to, to be concerned about, um, and it just seems such an easy fix. Um, when it comes to the end of the games, one could stop on the moment the clock hits zero or um, borrow something from, um, I think it's from rugby, where the game ends when the ball goes out of bounds or when the referee's whistle goes because of an infringement. Yeah, I, I quite like the, um, the idea of it just stopping, that you like you can get a shot off. Um, obviously, Steph Curry's been doing unbelievable unbelievable beat the buzzer shots in uh, basketball and I think it'd be pretty cool if you know you had Lionel Messi stepping up and you know with two seconds left curling one into the top corner from 30 yards that's that would be something I'd love to see and if time's expired you know as the attacking team you you know what you've got to do you cannot afford to lose the ball because then it'll just be kicked out of play and game over yeah exactly um and for Windy what's your technology change um I, I mean I like the idea of referrals I think that's a really interesting um, concept. It'll, the problem with re- referrals is how you stop and start the game, I suppose, and, and when you can make those referrals, because you could imagine a team countering away down the field and suddenly the opposition manager panics and uses their referral, which is where the, um, the losing a substitute thing comes into play, I guess, to stop that kind of thing. But that's an interesting one. But um, one for me, I, I still like the idea of referees wearing microphones. Um, I feel like referees get a ridiculously hard time on the football pitch and, and from pundits as well. And we've seen it in rugby and we've seen the amount of respect that officials get. And I do think that having the microphone helps because it gives them a voice um, and it allows you to sort of see what a difficult job they've got in there to keep keep players um, under control, essentially. Um, obviously, there's the issue with swearing and, and how much swearing would be picked up, but it would only take a few yellow cards and then subsequent red cards for players to realise that they need to curb their language a bit um, because there's kids listening on a TV audience or whatever. And that's something that I've, I've wanted to see for quite some time. The other thing, I mean, it's not so much a technology change, but I've been wanting to see retrospective action for diving for some time. And also something that really bugs me is when a player gets a suspension um, for, for yellow cards and there's yellow cards that have been given erroneously. So I feel that like it should be some kind of appeal system for a yellow card as well as a red yeah, I agree with that. But didn't they actually trial the microphone thing? Did they? Oh, I missed that completely. Yeah, they that. certainly they had. Um, I think it might have been in the A League in Australia. They had uh, the GoPros on the referees, and uh, it, it was quite interesting. Um, <laughs> I don't. I just don't think uh, the culture, the football culture, could possibly uh, change to such an extent that um, the audio would ever be allowed to be aired <laughs> on national TV. To be honest. Yeah, I'm sure they trialed it in a Premier League game in like the 90s and it just went really, really badly. So they just stopped. I just can't imagine Wayne Rooney calling uh, Mark Clattenburg sir and acting very politely. 
Also, just footballs are more passionate games, so the tempers will run. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, we've reached the end of this podcast. Um, my huge thanks to our panelists, Dimmy God, Windy, and AC, and my thanks to all the coisers who download and listen to this podcast. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope it uh, somewhat mitigates the international break blues. Come on, you Spurs! Come on, you Spurs! Come on, you Spurs!